0: You probably notice
1: the table out in the lobby. On the solstices and equinoxes, we have our quarterly community gathering, and so as part of the program this morning, we'll chant the Refuges and Precepts. This is a ritual that's been done for a long time, and we'll do it today. It takes about ten minutes, and uh, one of the things... A lot of us felt as we were growing up, maybe still feel a lot as adults, is that there are many, many rituals and forms in our culture that don't make a lot of sense to us and seem like a waste of time. And we tend, when that happens, we tend to want to blame our elders or the powers that be, as opposed to getting involved with the forms and rituals of our lives. So Common Ground, you know, in a way the center is in a way born out of that attitude of, you know, rituals have mostly been empty and not so useful. And so the center doesn't have too many forms or rituals or even symbols. You know, we have a few, but mostly we have kind of empty walls and and the idea is though, you know, We need placeholders in our lives. We need reminders. That's really the whole point of ritual, symbol, form. It's to remind us of something that we have a tendency to forget. So I want to talk a little bit about that before we do this ceremony, this ritual of taking refuge, taking the precepts, you know, this commitment to non harming, so that we can appreciate. Uh, maybe with a sense of humility that we need to be reminded. It's easy to forget. Because, especially in terms of the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and these are Pali words, of course, it's easy to, uh, yeah, just forget what it's pointing to and how relevant, how practical that is. This awakening, this awakening to the Buddha knowing Dhamma. The open and empty knowing, knowing things as they are. This is as practical and as relevant as anything is in our lives. It makes so much sense for human beings to want to gravitate toward Buddha knowing Dhamma. So we take refuge in the Buddha knowing Dhamma. We take refuge in the heart, the mind that knows Knowing the way that it is. Normally, you know, the idols we bow down to, the gods we bow down to, are our opinions about things. You know, all of our juicy ideas about this and that, our desires and our fears, they get front center stage all the time. You know, whatever it is, it's different for each of us what we allow to take center stage over and over we give our attention to, we honor them by giving our attention to that, these ideas, these opinions, these fantasies, these judgments. And so we're, you know, we're consciously, you know, each of us, to our own degree, we're consciously creating reminders in our life that uh, maybe what we've been worshipping most of our life has been uh, not so helpful. And maybe there's something else to give our attention to or to pay our respects to and to, in a sense, set emotion motion in our lives. So these are the three refuges. As, uh, you know, it's in some traditions, it's the way that you kind of identify with being a Buddhist, which is, in my mind at least, being a Buddhist means you're really interested in human common sense. So, you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So, the Buddha, of course, as a symbol, is this historic person, and we've got statues of this guy, and uh, we have stories, legends, myths, or whatever, about this guy. And, uh, you know, for some of us, they're really inspiring stories or myths or legends or truths. I mean, who, who knows, really? But as a reminder, I find it really useful that... You know, I have this idea of a person who said these things, who lived this way. I find that helpful. It's not that important, ultimately. What's important is that something reminds you of this potential in your own heart and mind to be fully awake, for the mind to be fully alert and clear and, uh, you know, not distorted by fears and desires. So when we're seeing, when we're knowing, when we're awake in our lives, our daily lives, we're not that like experience, what we're experiencing as we're interacting with somebody, it's not being colored by our neurotic conditioning. It doesn't mean we don't have neurotic conditioning. I mean, that there's nothing we can do about We were raised in a particular time and place with a particular set of genetic code particular parents and friends and all of that has made an imprint on the mind on the heart but we can know that imprint we can be wise about that imprint that conditioning and not confused by it and that's Buddha Buddha is that knowing that awareness that's not confused by anything now at least intellectually we can understand that maybe we haven't realized that that's actually a sign of wisdom to know that we don't realize that very often that awareness that's not hindered by our stuff, our conditioning. But that's a a step in the direction of Buddha, to know that our awareness, our way of being in the world, is being hindered by our conditioning, right? That we have prejudices, that we have opinions that we're stuck to. Even though we know we're stuck, we're still stuck. To be honest about that is a, a powerful step, in the direction of understanding Buddha, what we mean by Buddha. And the reason we're interested in Buddha, because it's only Buddha, this clear, unhindered awareness, that can know Dhamma. Dhamma means the way it is. So when we haven't been Buddha, which is almost all the time, we're not really connecting with the way it is, the world as it is. And it's a problem because when we're not connecting, when we're not knowing Dhamma the way it is, we're knowing things as we imagine them to be, as we want them to be, as we're afraid that they are. And then our whole life comes out of that misperception. You know, instead of Buddha knowing Dhamma, we have Mark, this neurotic guy, coming out of this particular set of conditioning knowing what I imagine is happening. And then my actions come out of that diluted knowing. Then you get a life like this. (laughs) But It is the way that it is. Some of you, most of you don't know me well, but those of you who know me well might have some compassion. Just as we can have compassion for each other because... To the degree we understand that it's, you know, it's Lisa knowing the world as she imagines, or Wendy knowing the world as she imagines, or Casey knowing the world that he, as he imagines, then we know it doesn't work. That doesn't work, and we call that dukkha. It's the basic uneasiness and anxiety we experience in life. Even, like in my case, when I've had a lot of good fortune in my life, so even when we've had a lot of good fortune, we can have compassion for those people because even with their good fortune they're suffering they're stressed they're uneasy maybe not as uneasy as people in poverty or people who have had a lot of loss or a lot of overwhelming challenges but life is unsatisfying difficult anxious stressful for most of us most of the time because where that conditioning, we're being diluted by our conditioning, imagining that things are this way, acting from that imagination, and our actions don't fit because they're not in alignment with the way it actually is. They're in alignment with the way we imagine it is. And that's how, you know, often a big disconnect between what we take things to be and what things actually are. We all know what it means to misread things in a superficial way. You know, we think it's a two-way street, but it's actually a one-way street. You know, we've misread the situation. We almost get in an accident, but the first chance we turn around and now we're safe. But there are much more subtle ways we're misreading the way it is. Like, you know, one of the things that's talked a lot about in Buddhist practice is one of the great misperceptions is we imagine that we are apart. That I'm here in some fundamental way apart from you, from the rest of everything else. That we live existentially as separate individuals in a seemingly permanent way. Like I'm permanently who I am apart from everything else. And that we all share that Whatever you want to call it alienation, or and that's, a mis- that's a perception based coming out of our conditioning, because you know we've been trained to see, experience our life that way. and then we act accordingly. So when that sense of self is threatened, it's, uh, it's profound that sense whether it's a psychological threat or a physical threat, It sort of rocks our world because the one thing we know, which is the sense of separation, this thing that is apart, is being threatened. And then we do all kinds of things, most of them neurotic, in the sense of being harmful for ourselves and others, to address that challenge, that fear. Now, what happens if that's a misperception based on conditioning? And you can just see the kind of implications that has You know, from a Buddhist point of view, saints are people who have, to some degree at least, overcome that misperception. So their actions aren't based on that sense of separation. And then they have different kinds of actions in the world. More light and joyful, loving and compassionate actions in the world. More skillful actions in the world. In the previous couple of weeks, we've been sort of revisiting our basic meditation practice and daily life practice as using this acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, just as a way of remembering and as a, a way of helping us reflect, like becoming wiser about what this path of awakening is all about. And the R stands for to recognize this. And part of that shift from what we call wrong view this is me and life is as I imagined it is and I'm going to act out of that imagination to emphasizing recognition not emphasizing that I'm here thinking it's like this acting accordingly but instead this it's really profound humility like the only reason we're not really mindful in the moment is because we arrogantly think we already know what's going on Or, I already know I'm at Comic-Con. I already know I like Mark. Or, I already know I don't like Mark, but I like the community. Or, whatever, whatever your opinion is, it's like it goes unquestioned. Our ideas about things, our beliefs about things, they just keep coming up. And we just take them as the way that it is. So, this first movement in practice to recognize this is how it is, or that this is being known, is a real act of humility. Like we don't want to uh, immediately take our imagination, our view, our opinion to be any kind of reality. It's just that. It's just a thought. It's just an opinion. And we're cultivating the qualities of mind, of heart, that allow us to have a more direct, immediate, wise, Awakening, basically. We're awakening to how it is. We're not just understanding things according to how we imagine them to be, how we've taken them to be in the past, like our partner, like common ground, like walking down the street, like looking in the mirror. But we're actually showing up in a very beautiful, balanced way to the experience. It's a a radical shift from our normal way of being in the world. And so that's why we have a formal practice called meditation because we need that simplified experience of just sitting somewhere quiet to practice recognizing, oh, this moment is just something being known. It's just this which is being known. You see how much conceptual weight that strips away. Like just take a few seconds now and just practice that understanding, that view, this is just something being known. Whether you're tuning into your body and the sensations, this contact, this pressure is being known, or any thoughts, instead of getting confused by the content of the thought or the the content of the perception, like if you're looking, your mind is, of course, Recognizing the visual information and putting in content, and very quickly we forget that it's just seeing being known, and there's the memory or the perception of what's being seen. But that's just thought, you know, like that. It's almost like the mind's whispering, "Yeah, this is common ground. You're looking at common ground." But we can just say, "Oh, that's just a thought." So there's the visual field, the color, the shape, and then there's whatever information arises due to that visual experience or that auditory experience or that tactile experience. And then if it's all making you feel a little queasy or uneasy, then that's just a funny visceral feeling being known. Or if you're feeling energized, then that's just energy being known. And this is really at the heart of Buddha knowing Dhamma, that we have to begin to trust That raw, simple, balanced, recognizing this is how it is. This experience of the body, this experience of the mind, is being known. It's just something being known. The whole world, you know, in terms of the diversity of our ideas about things and our opinions, about good and bad and what I want and what happened in the past and what I'm hoping for in the future, that huge edifice, that complex edifice, it literally implodes whenever there's a simple moment of mindfulness. Oh, this is just something being known, because it's that's not complex. And you see, there's actually nothing outside of that simple moment of recognition. Because when when the mind says this is just something being known, it's a non-excluding excluding awareness. It's not like we're this is being known, but there's all this other world over there. Because when we say this it means this. There's nothing excluding, being excluded. When we say, this is being known. This is how it is. Like Ajahn Sumedho says in defining a term in Buddhist practice, Kagata is the Pali term, usually gets translated as one-pointedness. And he translated, translates it as the one point that includes everything. Now, this, it isn't about like really getting your attention right to the tip of the nostrils and, and like shutting out the rest of the world, even if you do use a specific anchor for your meditation practice, like you're really focusing on one thing, like the in-breath touching or the out-breath touching just here, feeling that one location, you'll find if you're doing your practice correctly, you'll find that as you absorb into one object, the whole world opens up. It doesn't mean that you're looking around and seeing and feeling and hearing everything. It just means that when you open to one thing exclusively in the correct way, what you see there is everything. It's like a hologram. I don't know really understand holograms, but I've read a little.
2: <laughs> but I
1: understand it's like part of what makes a hologram a hologram is that the the information that, you know, is used to create it it's like, exists in a relatively whole way, everywhere. So even though you might block, it doesn't distort, it doesn't take away the completeness of the image. And it's like that. It's like you can't get away from Dhamma. So when the Buddha is in that open, non-distorted place, right? so the mind isn't distorted by content, doesn't mean there isn't content, like thought or emotion, but the mind's not confused by it, which means content is just content. Emotion is just emotion. Sound is just sound. Sight is just sight. Sensation is just sensation. Then what it awakens to, what it knows, even if it's looking at the breath or opening the hearing, what it really knows is Dhamma, the way that it is. Because everything reveals, in a sense, the truth. Now, I know this sounds a little magical. And generally, in Buddhist teachings, in this tradition especially, it's very pragmatic. But we have to, even though it's very pragmatic, we have to stay open to the possibility that we're really deluded. So what is so direct and real and uh, available doesn't mean we know it, because, you know, we know this is true, at least intellectually. Humans, and with language, with the help of language, we have an amazing capacity to create our own bubble and live inside of it. And I bet many of us remember times in our life where we created our own bubble and lived inside of it, and we didn't know it until the bubble burst. And then we realized you weren't really in the same reality as everyone else, which was, is its own bubble, of course. But just that teaches us that we can be, like, if we can create a bubble that's distinct from our concept, consensual bubble, then that means this consensual bubble can be a bubble, too. So the Buddha often referred to ordinary people, worldly people, you know, that they're living in a state of ignorance. And what uh, somebody who practices well they wake up to the way it is. They awaken to Dhamma. And probably fall back into the sort of worldly view of things because initially, it's not easy to live in that world. It feels like there are two worlds. So there's sort of two parts of this path. One is to realize we're deluded. And two is to begin to integrate the awakened state into the world, into the diluted world, into this world of individuals doing their best to survive and get along. So, um, what we do at these quarterly gatherings is we chant the Refugees and Precepts, which we'll find in your chant book. And I, I know people are going to have to share because there aren't enough for everybody. So, please share with your neighbor, it's good practice. And we're on page We are on page 35. In case you want to ring the bell, wherever it says "Ring the bell.") <laughs> So we, a lot of us you don't have to we use this uh, another gesture another part of the ritual if you like it you can do it I learned it when I was a good Catholic growing up In the east it's called Anjali and it's just a a symbol or a gesture of respect and gratitude we put it by our heart and uh, in Buddhist practice in the different traditions all kinds of different vows but here in the west well people do it all kinds of different ways but Formally, at the center, we don't really uh, have formal bowing, but we do use Anjali and bring our forehead down a few times. You might notice people do it at the beginning or the end of a meditation period. And again, you can just use that if you want. So you can do that where it says, by a bow, and you can do the common ground bow. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll do the refuges in Pali, the language spoken around the time of the Buddha, and these teachings were recorded in that language. And uh, when we do the precepts in the next page, we'll do it in poly, then we'll read the English, and then I need five volunteers to read TikTok Han's comments on each of the five precepts. So, Susan, you want to do one? Anybody else? Yeah. Two, Greg. Three, Spruce. Four, Stacy. And five, uh, Audrey. Okay, so we'll just begin with uh, three bells. And uh, how much to the Buddha? So we pay respect to our historic teacher. Namo tassa Bhagavato In the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from pain. And the second. I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting my awareness
0: of the way things are.
1: Third, I take refuge in the sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion to
0: show us the
2: way.
1: And we'll chant the five precepts now, first in Pali, then in English, and then we'll listen to somebody read Tadanhan's comments. First one. Anastipasta, where am the Sikha I undertake a training to refrain from harming living
0: beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, and committed to cultivating compassion, and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings, and
3: determined not to kill, not to let others kill not to
0: condone
1: any act of killing in
0: the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings I've to study And now the second. <world> I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice.
1: Now the third. Kamesu
0: mitchachara where Sikha Padam Samaryami. I undertake a change to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to
3: protect the safe child. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment, to preserve the happiness of myself and others. I am determined to respect my commitment and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third beside my fullest training. I vow to study and practice.
1: Now the fourth <laughs> Musawa And now the fifth, Surah uh, Maryam,
0: Machapamaratana. And now we finish up. Idang tehtilam maga nyanasa, may
1: my conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And we read below. Taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness training,
0: and practicing the way of awareness and insight. His rise to benefits without limits. I offer to share all blessings
1: and merits with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May his life and
0: practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions, leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy.
1: the children, and I think today that the preteens, they can come in. The preteens are going to do a little something for us, so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.